This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 5th of October, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the beatification of St Gladys by the mainstream media, and why are federal government MPs so fearful of a federal commission against corruption? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I'm announcing my resignation from the New South Wales Parliament. Thanks to all our new Patreon subscribers. It's a community of engagement for our listeners who want to receive some additional political material or just if you want to support New Politics because you like what we do, you can find the details at our website, newpolitics.com.au and it's a very, very good way to support independent journalism. Corruption is quite a dirty word in politics, but it seems to have gone missing over the past few days. Ever since the Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, was forced to resign over revelations that the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption was going to investigate her over allegations of corruption. But there's been much adulation coming from the media, pushing the idea that Berejiklian is a person of integrity, promoting the stories of residents leaving flowers and baskets at her electoral office in Willoughby, and attacking the New South Wales ICAC for the timing of their investigation. Many politicians from all sides of politics arrived to thank Berejiklian for her service to the people of New South Wales, and how sad they were to see her go before the Federal Shadow Minister, Ed Husich, the Labor MP representing the people of South West Sydney, brought some sensibility into the debate. There's been a lot of outpouring of views uh, on one side of the ledger, talking about how unfair this is uh, to Gladys Berejiklian, but I, I, I am not in that camp. Uh, and I think a lot of the people that I represent and care about here in Sydney's West see that she was a Premier, particularly through this pandemic and this lockdown, uh, for the east and the north of the city. You know, she managed a very uh, ideological, political uh, lockdown that divided the city, saw things happen in the west that would not happen in the north and the east, played politics with public health. And I represent uh, nearly 7,000 largely unvaccinated residents in the suburbs of uh, Chifley that caught COVID. And I could not look those people in the eye and say, I thank Gladys Berejiklian for her service, when really the phrase that should be uttered by her and the New South Wales Liberals is, sorry, we let you down, and then they fix it. Now, it's obvious the media was a big supporter of Gladys Berejiklian, but they've been reporting her resignation from politics as though it was a loss of a close friend. They've been blaming the ICAC, in some cases blaming other parts of the media for their lynch mob mentality, even though nobody forced her to resign, and totally ignoring the fact that Berejiklian is being investigated for corruption. I might be missing something here, but I would have thought that a Premier resigning because of allegations of corruption wasn't really anything to celebrate, but maybe I've got that part wrong. For those outside New South Wales, a little bit of context is important because Gladys Berejiklian 
she was educated in a public school. She couldn't speak English till she went to the public school uh, and she learned English at school. She worked her way through school ranks, did very well at school, went to university, joined the Liberal Party, worked her way through the Liberal Party and, and through dint of hard work and talent, got pre-selection for the seat of Willoughby. The Chelly wins by 100 votes. Uh, she turns those numbers around to 9,000. She becomes a minister fairly quickly because of her hard work and talent. And from that angle, she seems very impressive. And a lot of people were very impressed with her, particularly in her early days. She destroys all that through her dealings with Daryl Maguire. She lacked that fundamental chip in her, I guess, that stopped her from allowing the wrong thing to happen that stopped her from being the person of integrity she claims to be and I have no doubt wants to be. Now, there's no question that ICAC have a lot of evidence. The investigation's been going for 12 months at least, and you can bet that the last few weeks would have been high-level meeting after high-level meeting going through every bit of evidence they've got. And we don't really know what it, she's got. There's talk of all kinds of things. We don't really know what they've got. There's talk of all kinds of things. That will come out on October 18 when it starts. But whatever it is, it must be explosive and it must be absolutely solid because the Liberal government has cut the funding to ICAC three times in the last five years. And they usually cut it just as they're starting to get close to big figures. So clearly there's been some management there to make sure that the big figures, rather than the councillors and the small petty council officials and low-level public servants who they normally get, and this is important work too, don't get me wrong, they've decided that they need to start to clean out the rot near the top. And she's caught herself right in the center of it. I suspect if she gets off, it'll be on a technicality. I also suspect that if her boyfriend, Arthur Moses, top corruption lawyer, had thought that there was any way she could get through this, he'd have told her and she would have still been premier. And so all the praise has been quite strange because surely those praising her know that things could go bad and Praise for someone done for corruption can be horribly out of date and come back to bite you. Now, I'm not someone who lords politicians from any side of politics. They've got a job to do. They're not rock stars. And it's not up to the media to behave like groupies one way or another. Now, politicians should be role models for how people should behave in public life. And they should be competent. They've got a job to do. And that's about it. But in reality... Berejiklian was quite an unspectacular premier. She stood up to nobody. She acquiesced to some very powerful people, knocking down the Sydney Football Stadium, wanting to demolish the Sydney Olympic Park Stadium, even though that was only 20 years old. And that was all to do with the Sydney Cricket Ground Trust. That There's got some very powerful people in there, bending to Alan Jones to advertise the Everest horse race on the sales of the Opera House back in 2018. There was the West Connects program as well, which seemed to benefit Liberal Party donors in the construction and finance industries. Now, one good thing that she did do is that she did fix up the Opal public transport ticketing system, but that was before her time as Premier. And she did have a remarkable marketing team behind her as well, but that's about it. Berejiklian was a yes person and a conduit to some very powerful people in New South Wales and a conduit for corruption in New South Wales as well. That's how she should probably be best remembered. I think that's exactly right. She has achieved nothing. The first term, they did not start nor finish one infrastructure project. 
she undermined her own public servant by acquiescing to Alan Jones's intemperate demands that an advertisement for the Everest Racing Day be projected onto the Sydney Opera House or after the organisers had been told no. She made a law, and for all of our out-of-state listeners, this is all for context, and we haven't got to where it affects out-of-state listeners yet, but most of you know where it's going, I think. She made a law to stop homeless people being able to sleep in Martin Place without bringing in alternatives for them. This is extraordinarily bad policy. One thing to want the homeless out of Martin Place, another thing to not actually want to solve the problem, just get them out. She, of course, was part of the decision-making process that spreads COVID in two strains throughout the country. And New South Wales is coming out of lockdown at a time where Armadale has gone into lockdown, where the Hunter Valley is projected to hit a 1,000 cases a day by the middle of October, where Wollongong is projected to hit 800 a day by the middle of October. And this will affect Sydney. So coming out of lockdown, we're potentially looking at either massive overwhelming numbers or another lockdown. And this is all down to her. And the, the big word that seems to be missing at the moment is corruption. You know, that's the word that nobody wants to talk about, but we will talk about it here today. But it's a further sign that the Liberal Party doesn't seem to understand corruption or want to talk about corruption, either that or they're totally deluded. They're now talking about Gladys Berejiklian being urged to run in the federal seat of Warringah at the next federal election. And that's a seat held by the independent, Zali Stegall. And if this occurred, Zali Stegall would have a field day, an Olympic gold medalist against gold standard corruption. You know, who, who would you vote for in that situation? Corruption is being framed as a key issue for the next election. And I can't imagine that fielding a candidate with allegations of corruption hanging over their head would go down very well in the electorate. And we're also getting a better idea of why Morrison was angling for a federal election in November. The Morrison Berejiklian combination would have been seen as a way of holding on or gaining seats in New South Wales. And he, he would have wanted to an election before any ICAC hearings. And that, that would have been a high-risk strategy if he had have done that. You know, It would have been made worse if he had called an election for November and then the ICAC made their announcement in the middle of a campaign. So perhaps the ICAC has actually done Morrison a, a favour here. But whatever the case, there's a new Premier in New South Wales that electoral appeal that might have come from Berejiklian, that's gone. Morrison has also had his fourth cabinet reshuffle this year, and that's after Christian Porter moved to the backbench. So the leadership in the New South Wales government is imploding, but it's not looking very good for Scott Morrison either. He aligned himself very closely with New South Wales and favoured New South Wales unfairly for vaccines, for all kinds of other things. He's seen as the Prime Minister for New South Wales. Now, for those of our listeners in Tasmania, South Australia, Western Australia, Queensland, and even the ACT and Northern Territory, I don't need to express the frustration that you'd feel. Prime Minister represents everybody. Now, they can be from a state, and that's good. And being from a state may shape the way you look at the rest of the country, and that's fine. But Hawke didn't favour Western Australia unduly. Keating didn't favour New South Wales unduly. Gillard didn't favour South Australia unduly. They got advantages from having their prime ministers from there. But 
they weren't so openly pro their state that the rest of the country started to wonder the, the level of representation. And, and the other thing about Gladys running for Warringah, the human element aside, she's probably sick of politics and has had enough of the scrutiny, etc. The scrutiny is justified, but nonetheless, I also think that if if some of the underground rumours that I've heard, which I'm not which I'm not going to repeat here, are true. It's very hard to represent your constituency from a jail cell when we are looking at that possibility. There's also been two other resignations in New South Wales politics as well. The Deputy Premier is also resigning. That's John Barillaro. Andrew Constance, he's a senior minister within the New South Wales government. He's also announced that he's resigning as well and running as a candidate at the next federal election. Now, none of these resignations actually make political sense. And unless there's other matters that we don't know about, Andrew Constance's move to federal parliament is all about ambition, but he looks a bit tired. He's a bit of a loose cannon at the moment. He doesn't seem emotionally equipped for federal politics. He'd be better off having a break. As you mentioned about Gladys Berejiklian, she's been there for a long, long time. Maybe these people do need a break. And John Bar- Laro has been in politics for a while. So there's a lot of things going on within New South Wales politics that we don't fully understand. Some of it doesn't really make that much political sense, but there is a new Premier. And Dominic Perrottet, now for the people outside of New South Wales who don't know who Dominic Perrottet is, just imagine a young John Howard, possibly circa 1970, and you've got an idea of what that might look like. He's actually far more right-wing than John Howard ever was. He's got extremist views as far as his Catholicism is concerned. In my opinion, he's probably an unelectable Premier, but you know there are benefits of incumbency. There's about 16 months to go to build his profile before the next New South Wales election, that's not due until March 2023, of course, if he lasts that long. But this has got the whiff of the last 15 months from the New South Wales Labor government between late 2009 and 2011. My feeling is that this is not going to work out very well at all. Perrottet is inexperienced. He's only 39. He's got little life experience outside of corporate legal firm and politics. I've got a feeling that this might not end very well. He is very involved with the mismanagement of iCare, which is essentially uh, government insurance. Now, they paid $320 million to a a labor hire firm and consultancy firm. Meanwhile, there were 52,000 people who needed the insurance money, and they paid four of them. Now, it's either incompetence or something else going on. In inexperience, let's put it that way. It's either inexperience or something else is going on there. He's not terribly well liked within the party, which is something that Gladys Berejiklian was. She was well liked within the party. So I, I don't quite know what the party is thinking. I also suspect that we will have another premier before the election. And again, this has national implications, uh, which is why it's it's worth discussing today. And this change in the leadership in New South Wales, well, that creates a level of instability. Gladys Berejiklian had the benefit of having had 
four years as Premier of New South Wales. People were used to her. Now she's gone. And now there's someone else the electorate needs to get their head around. And that's a stability that can arise with a competent leader. And it's something that that can change quite quickly. But it still is a period of instability within the New South Wales government that does exist. It's Scott Morrison's home state. He either needs to hold seats or pick up extra seats at the next federal election. And it looks like the pathway towards a federal election victory for Scott Morrison has narrowed down substantially. Yeah. The other thing we've got to remember is that even though they're a very slim majority government, Labor only holds 38 seats. The rest of the seats are independents, and a good percentage of those independents are ex-Liberal members who had to step down from the Liberal Party while they were being investigated. So there is a bit of buffer there for the government to um, not worry too much about a vote of no confidence. Having said that, if there are going to be more resignations from the party and all kinds of names are being bandied around and all kinds of numbers of who's going to resign are being bandied around, that buffer may disappear with by-elections. And Sydney's buzzing at the moment again. For those of you outside of Sydney... Sydney is buzzing with rumours and a lot of which are clearly nonsense, some of which are hopefully nonsense and some of which seem pretty spot on the money. But what will happen after over the next couple of weeks is not going to be any less interesting, but we'll see. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, we look at who has most to fear from a federal corruption commission. And it's fairly well to my old lover I don't expect to see you again The federal government first announced its intention to create a National Integrity Commission all the way back in late 2018, and it's coming up to three years later and there's still no action on this. A federal commission against corruption won't be created in time before the next federal election, and the federal government is likely to make announcements about this without actually doing anything about it. And whenever a commission against corruption is created, it has to be wide-ranging and explore every aspect of federal politics. Recently, the Australian Federal Police said that they investigated the $30 million purchase of land by the federal government in southwest Sydney, even though it was valued at only $3 million. But the AFP said that there was no evidence of corruption and nothing to investigate. This situation can't continue. Australia has slipped in the World Transparency Index from number three in 2013 down to the current level of number 11. And without a federal commission against corruption, it's likely to slide even further. Why is the federal government so reluctant to introduce a federal ICAC and what do they have to fear about this? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? When you look at the obvious corruption that has gone on in the federal government, it's very obvious. And it it starts at the top and goes all the way down. It's not the odd rogue corrupt minister who has done this and is an anomaly. It's right throughout the system. I'll put it another way. Everybody loves law enforcement till they fall under its gaze. And New South Wales ICAC is doing 
a very good job. South Australian ICAC is doing a very good job till they cut it, which is probably why they cut it. Victorian ICAC doing a great job. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. And we're about to go through why. Well, there's been so much corruption over the past three or four years committed by the federal government, and it's just too numerous to actually outline here. But over the past three years, we've produced quite a few podcast episodes that deal specifically with corruption, and it's in the billions of dollars. There's just so much money that has gone out to friends of the Liberal Party, Liberal Party donors, and as I said, there's just too too much to mention right now. But if a federal commission against corruption was created, according to the structures of most state and territory-based ICACs that we've got at the moment, we've estimated that there would be at least 11 federal MPs who would be investigated, and that's based on all the information that's publicly available at the moment. So who do we think would be in the dock? There's Angus Taylor, Peter Dutton, Stuart Roberts, Paul Fletcher, Barnaby Joyce, Josh Frydenberg, Gladys Liu, Bridget McKenzie, Michael McCormack, Christian Porter, Scott Morrison. Now, we could actually do an entire podcast episode just reading out the names, and they've all got cases to answer. So that's at least 11 sitting MPs that are likely to be investigated if there was a federal ICAC according to existing state and territory guidelines. And I haven't included those MPs who have left Parliament, Malcolm Turnbull, Christopher Pine, Andrew Robb, Matthias Cormann, and I haven't mentioned those MPs that are likely to leave Parliament as well, such as George Christensen or Andrew Lemming. So we're getting a better idea of why the federal government has been so reluctant to introduce a federal ICAC and why they don't want to make it retrospective. There'd be a lot of Liberal and National Party MPs who would end up in court and some of them would possibly end up in jail. There's a possibility that uh, some of this stuff was actually all above board and that what seemed to be very dishonest was actually very honest and legal and even beneficial. I think we've got to say that just because in an infinite universe, anything is possible, but it doesn't look good. We could do a whole podcast series on the improprieties of Barnaby Joyce. George Christensen's 300 days in Manila is not just a holiday. He had attracted the attention of the Australian Federal Police and ASIO, which is not something you want as an international traveler. We haven't been able to see what they found, and we'll never see an ASIO file anyway, and we'll unlikely see a federal police file. But the fact that they actually looked at him beyond a cursory glance suggests that there was more going on there than just him visiting his fiancée, who he met much later into the trip and got engaged very quickly. I'm not saying any more than that because I, I don't know the the details there and that may well be very honest and I don't want to bring an innocent woman into it. Barnaby Joyce, oh lordy, <laughs> oh boy, the land, buying the land just before Cabinet announces that they'll be mining gas there. But after they decided it, how he thought that this was in any way proper or ethical, I don't know. The whole um, Vicky Campion thing, again, I don't want to bring her into it, but before National Party supporters jump in, there is a point where a lot of this is none of our business and he shouldn't be called on it. And I accept that, except hiding it by getting her jobs where she didn't have to do very much, but was paid quite well for it, becomes a big problem. Sure, things happen. I don't know what the status of his other marriage was like, etc., etc. I'm not going to judge any there, but we can judge him trying to hide the pregnancy by moving her from job to job in high-paid 
fairly soft jobs. Apparently, this is a factor in one of the resignations in New South Wales. We can't say any more about that just yet. (laughs) But it's interesting how the pattern repeats, possibly. And generally, the electorate doesn't like hearing about corruption. Like, sure, they'll overlook small matters such as a staffer getting a well-paid job to get them out of the way or whatever. You know, we'd prefer it if that didn't actually exist. And that's where it gets into the election campaign, I guess. And, And running a campaign based on issues of corruption would be an absolute winner for Labor. If they go hard on corruption and promise that they will create a commission against corruption with teeth... And if they manage to win the next election, they can absolutely go to town on all of this. They could create a general royal commission into corruption in federal politics because it seems that it's so endemic. They could wipe the slate clean, keep the Liberal Party out of office for a generation. The main thing that they would have to worry about this is if there's any possible corruption from their own side of politics before 2013, and that's the last time that they were actually in federal government. But this would weed out corruption from their opponents and create a commission that keeps a lid on corruption in federal politics going into the future. So there's not much to lose from this situation. But first of all, Labor would need to win the next federal election and introduce the type of commission against corruption that they're promising to do. But all of this is not going to happen if the Liberal National Coalition remains in office. Yeah. Labor has to make sure that it is fairly clear or very clean. I think some of the closer ties to mining probably have to be cut, if not for the actual act, then for the appearance of at least impartiality. Now, Labor has the issue. It's the union party, and it is a party designed to represent unions. So there are all kinds of cross-connections and associations that may look dishonest and corrupt, but in fact aren't. And that's true in the Liberal Party, too, with business. The corruption we're talking about is actual personal gain corruption. Labor has a pretty seemingly honest front bench at the moment, some very good candidates there may be one or two or three or four figures who may need to be tapped on the shoulder and removed. So when a federal ICAC comes in, Labor can stand on its morals and ethics and say, yes, we are clean and we feel comfortable that if you need to investigate us, that nothing untoward will be found. And that's where you want to be, that you you don't need to be investigated. But if you do get investigated with random audits, even, you're confident that there'll be nothing found. Well, most politicians and MPs, they can, you know, they can have the highest standards they want to have when they're in opposition. But the big test is once they actually get into government and how clean they are. So you can promise all the things against corruption. You can promise that you'll be as squeaky clean and honest as possible when you're in opposition. But it's a different story once you become a government MP because the responsibilities are totally different. There are greater pressures and demands of those positions. That's the problem. That's when corruption starts to eke into the existence of a government they might be squeaky clean once they get into government maybe for the first 12 months or so but then after that it becomes a lazy process where uh you know here's an extra couple of million dollars to resolve this problem or get this political problem out of our hair and that's why it's so essential that there is a national commission against corruption it's absolutely essential it's gone past the point of even talking about it It just has to be introduced as soon as possible It's that very famous letter from Lord Acton, which said, uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It was in the 19th century, but he's absolutely correct. And he also wrote, great men are almost always bad men. 
but that power tends to corrupt. Once you're up there and once you're being flattered and once you're being told that you're important and you're acting important, even as a humble local member, you make a phone call and things change because you ask for it. And soon your private time is getting impinged upon. Someone offers you a party donation to make things go through a bit easier. And there may be equally valid claims that are opposed to this one, but why shouldn't you take the extra bonus to at least the party? Now, that's not my attitude, but that's what I think people start to think. This is why I think we should have some form of term limit in Parliament. And I'm not quite sure how you do it, because it should take about 20 years to become Prime Minister. We've seen with Scott Morrison, it took him about 10, and that hasn't worked out. So I think we do need to rethink how this is done. And maybe that you can stay a backbencher for as long as you like, but ministries, you only get six years. I don't know. Things like the visa issue where Peter Dutton allowed two au pairs in when there were other people who were more vital to the running of the country, it must be said, being knocked back for all kinds of reasons. And even things like the arrogance of claiming your family member's use of the telephone or claiming internet usage at much more than any decent plan will get you. Nobody, I think, objects to your employer reimbursing you for legitimate business expenses, but the whole travel needs to be rethought through. At the moment, you get a travel allowance where it's up to your discretion how you spend it, but you get the full amount. I think that you should just get the receipts back. And if you need to stay in a five-star hotel, you need to explain why you stayed at the Ritz-Carlton rather than the Holiday Inn down the road. And there may be good reasons for that, but you have to be able to justify it. And if it doesn't get justified, then you don't get it back. Or you get back a little bit, you know. (laughs) We've all worked in offices with the uh, very strict accounts payable person who knocked every receipt back you ever had because they weren't proper. We need more of them in the public service, I think, particularly in uh, the parliamentary prime minister's office and office of the cabinet. So we've mainly been talking about corruption in federal politics and once people actually get there and how they behave in government. But we probably also need to look at political behaviour before people become an MP and enter parliament because the way that you enter parliament does define the way that you behave once you get there. A federal commission against corruption probably needs to look at pre-selection issues as as well. We've mentioned before on this podcast how Scott Morrison lost a fair pre-selection battle in 2007 but got engaged in a smear campaign with the Daily Telegraph against the winning candidate. He was then installed as the member for Cook and he's the one that entered Parliament and he's the one who ended up becoming Prime Minister. His foundation on entering Parliament was based on corruption and 14 years later, he leads a government which is engaged in wholesale corruption. So there is a connection there. That's where it all started. So it's not just the institution of federal parliament that needs to be covered by a federal commission against corruption. It's everything else that's attached to that institution as well that does need to be explored if we really want to reduce the possibility of corruption. Yeah, as we've seen, some of the processes aren't terribly good. The numbers of cases who had to be referred to the high court because they weren't Australian citizens. The court mostly sorted that out, but I don't think any process has been brought in to prevent that happening in the future. 
now at least people are more aware of it. You have to present a, an Australian birth certificate or an Australian citizenship, plus any documents rejecting any rights and benefits of other nations. Because some countries, even if you change citizenship, will still allow you to retain those rights and benefits. But we need a better way of electing good candidates. It's almost as if the parties aren't equipped for it or at least not all branches are equipped for it, whether it, it is done centrally, done from uh, the large bureaucracy of head office of the parties, whether it's done independently, a, a branch is set up that if you're a legitimate party and then independent people go through and you go through all your policies and, and all of that and how you'd represent the people and then they investigate that you're not open to corruption and don't have all the wrong ties. That seems rather convoluted and things could go horribly wrong as well. But it, it's worth thinking through how we might reform the parties so that things work better for everybody. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.